Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. When the Great War ended in 1918, it ushered in a global depression, both economically and socially. The soldiers who survived came home to countries they didn't recognize, countries with new names and new borders racked by new fears. Even for the victors, a return to stability seemed impossible. There was a sense that everything was broken. Democracy had failed. Capitalism had failed. Socialism was failing too. Nihilism was the only philosophy that still made sense. In Europe, The young people who came of age during this time were called the Generation of 1914. France called them the Generation de Feu, the Gunfire Generation. In Britain and America, they were known as the Lost Generation. In that kind of mass desperation, certain things can slip through the cracks. The people let their leaders consolidate power, let them blame foreigners, Let them do away with a civil liberty or two. They trusted in despots because there really wasn't a better alternative. Until before they realized it, the apocalypse they were trying to avoid was right there on their doorstep. Those are the circumstances that led to the rise of totalitarianism after World War I. To the rise of dictators. Welcome to Dictators, a new ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. With this series, we want to go deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. We all know about the atrocities committed by the likes of Hitler and Stalin. In the United States, we're familiar with longtime American adversaries such as Fidel Castro and Kim Jong-un. On Dictators, we'll trace the psychological, cultural, and spiritual influences that transformed these individuals. Either they were born psychopathic or they were hardened by circumstance. 
Without fail, each went from wanting to save their country to destroying it. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. For our first six episodes, we're starting with a bang as we explore the lives of World War II's three worst dictators, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, and Adolf Hitler. Today, we'll see how Mussolini harnessed disparate social elements such as socialism, nationalism, and futurism to forge a new belief system, fascism. This hateful ideology would be his chief tool in portraying himself as the ideal Italian man. And it would go on to inspire an even greater evil. Next week, we'll see how an alliance with that greater evil, Nazi Germany, led to Mussolini's downfall. Mussolini is often thought of as Hitler's incompetent lackey. His fellow fascist, who lost the war in Italy and died a day earlier on April 28, 1945, his body hung in a square and spit upon. But that is the modern perception. In his time, Mussolini was considered a swashbuckling heartthrob, a master politician. He rose to power in Italy years before Hitler became the face of totalitarianism. Despite destroying civil liberties in his country and exiling thousands of Italian Jews to concentration camps, Mussolini's people loved him. And some still do. But how could the people of any time view a monster in such a romantic light? And how has his global reputation fallen from that of the ultimate leader to the ultimate stooge? In order to answer these questions, we must trace Mussolini's time as a socialist agitator in Switzerland to his years as a newspaper man, to his crafty rise to prime minister. Mussolini's entire life was a self-defeating journey to fulfill a masculine ideal. He was born on July 29, 1883. His father, Alessandro Mussolini, was his first role model. According to Spartacus Educational, Mussolini once told a reporter, I come of peasant stock. My father was a blacksmith. He gave me strength. A young Mussolini would work the forge with his father, sweat dripping, sparks singeing his skin. Researcher Andrea San Giovanni describes the traditional image of Italian steelwork as a completely masculine world where the natural characteristics of man, strength, courage, leadership, honor, aggression, are praised to excess. Mussolini picked up on this, learning to be strong to a fault, to express only the most dominant part of himself. He was taught that a man worked hard. 
that he and his father were the laboring peasantry and across the country in Rome, there was a king and a church that reaped the benefits of their labor and didn't work at all. Even worse, there were Austrian kings to the north who ruled over land and people that were rightfully Italian. Young Mussolini imagined these rulers like fantasy despots, almost inhuman. Every day at the forge, his father filled his mind with ideas about a revolution of workers just like them. Men like them. Strong workers who made up the real Italy, who would one day inherit the earth. Mussolini loved his father, and he wanted nothing more than to live up to these ideals. This belief system, socialism with a little bit of nationalism, would entrance and beguile him throughout the rest of his life. But as much as he admired his father, he was also confused by him. He talked about strength and honor, but Mussolini gradually became aware that Alessandro didn't exactly personify those things. His father's main focus in life was not on his work, or his family, but his mistress, who he often spent money on while Mussolini, his two siblings, and his mother lived in a small home eating very basic meals. This engendered a toxic dichotomy within the young boy. He had a father telling him how to act like a man, but had no strong male role model to actually show him what that looked like. And so he would spend his life trying to decide for himself how a man should act while nursing a selfish streak that would topple a republic. Because if his own father wasn't going to look out for the young Mussolini, then who would? His mother noticed a growing anger inside of him. In 1892, when Mussolini was nine, she sent him to Catholic boarding school in the hopes that the priests would be able to calm him. The opposite was true. The Catholics were largely anti-socialists. They took out their political beliefs on Mussolini, the son of a socialist. This included withholding food from him and forcing him to sleep in the dog kennel. His selfish streak deepened as he felt that truly the whole world was out to get him. At the same time, some of the masculine ideals he had picked up from his father were being reinforced. Catholic doctrine emphasized the differences between men and women, how men were meant to be masculine leaders and women feminine mothers. This idea was driven home by the simple fact that it was an all-boys school with male-only teachers. Mussolini's growing toxic masculinity famously boiled over one day in the schoolyard when Mussolini stabbed a classmate in the hand. And so his picture of the ideal man continued to fill out. The ideal man was a strong, hard worker like his dad had taught him. But as he had picked up from Catholic school, aggression was a vital piece to the puzzle. He would never forget how the anti-socialist priests had treated him. Their pettiness, their need to exert control over a child, was anything but masculine. He figured that his father's disdain for the church in Rome was well-placed, that the Catholic church leadership was just as weak as the priests at his school. And so he decided that whatever the ideal man was, he wasn't Catholic. Mussolini managed to survive school. In fact, 
He excelled at it. He could now express his burgeoning ideals through scathing treatises and impassioned speeches. In 1900, at the age of 17, he was about to finish school when he and the rest of Italy learned of the assassination of their king, Umberto I. The king was killed by an anarchist socialist member of the working class. This would have inspired the young Mussolini. His father's worldview was being validated. The real men, the working men, were rising up against the parasite upper class. King Umberto was only the second monarch to rule over a united Italy. He was hated by working-class Italians for his support of violent worker suppression. He had also embroiled the country in wars of conquest in Somalia and Ethiopia, the latter of which ended in failure. On top of that, many Italians hated Umberto for his support of the Triple Alliance, which was a military alliance with Austria, the country's former enemy. The failure and ultimate murder of this monarch confirmed for Mussolini that socialism was the right philosophy. But just because they were right didn't mean they had power. A new monarch was crowned, Victor Emmanuel III, Umberto's son. Mussolini worried that he would be drafted into the army and forced to fight in some war driven by this new king. He would not die for someone he didn't even consider to be a real man. And so in 1902, after about a year working as an elementary school teacher, a 19-year-old Mussolini fled to Switzerland, hoping to find other socialists, other real men. This separation from his country ironically allowed him time to consider what exactly it meant to be Italian. In Switzerland, he saw many of the same problems as at home. That country was already the location of many of the large banks it's famous for today, and there was a large lower class that saw none of that money. Switzerland was thus a hotbed for socialism. Mussolini met with socialist leaders, wrote for socialist newspapers, and clashed with the police. This playground gave him enough distance from Italian politics to think about them objectively. The country had been united in 1861 under a new monarchy and with a prime minister and parliament. It was supposed to be a new dawn for Italy even a return to the days of the glorious Roman Empire 1,500 years before. But this unification had meant nothing for the average Italian. They still had to toil, some in factories, others in fields and mines. And in 1902, a majority of Italians still weren't even allowed to vote. Clearly, unification just meant that the top 1% now centrally controlled the labor and product of the working class. In Switzerland, Mussolini learned from leaders of socialist thought, men like Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky, two founders of the Russian Revolution and devout Marxists. They helped him hone the idea of what Italian socialism should look like the rewards of Italian labor in the hands of Italian workers, and no one else. Not the king, not parliament, not the Austrians. But while men like Karl Marx were calling for self-rule, Mussolini never seemed to settle on an exact prescription for what a modern government should look like. 
His belief system was heavy with contradiction. He wrote that socialism means the elevation and purification of the individual conscience, and its achievement will be the result of a long series of efforts. This seemed to suggest that he believed in the combined efforts of society as a whole, rather than the triumphs of the individual. But he also admired the idea of the best and brightest pushing to the top. Mussolini read Darwin and absorbed his message of struggling against tradition, authority, dogma. This was survival of the fittest philosophy. The idea that people in power are in power because of certain traits that make them better suited for it. Mussolini couldn't believe in both the collective achievements of society and the survival of the fittest. History would tell which side he leaned toward. His racial politics were similarly convoluted. Mussolini hated the nationalist, racist philosophies arising in Germany. But at the same time, he spoke of an Italian soul and was dismissive of their Slavic neighbors to the Northeast. So he didn't like an emphasis on national identity unless it was Italian national identity. And he didn't like racism, but he had certain racial prejudices. It was almost as if the masculine ideals instilled by his father and sharpened in Catholic school would never release their hold. Because as much as he admired the worker-focused ideals of socialism, he also seemed to find socialism somewhat feminine. Many socialists preached the idea of a global society free of borders, where everyone was equal. This sounded like fanciful nonsense to him. Italy needed to become a world power. That was the only way for him to show the world that the hard labor ideals of his youth were superior. The only way to show the world that Italians were true men, that he was a true man. His image of the ideal man was now the image of the ideal Italian man. Strong, aggressive, not Catholic, socialist, but only insofar as you maintained a sense of masculinity and national identity. In 1904, a 21-year-old Mussolini was expelled from Switzerland and forced to return to Italy after inspiring multiple riots against police and falsifying documents. He returned to his home country with a new vision. He would inspire the rural working class that he had been a part of. He would do this by playing on the masculine ideals of hard work and painting the ruling class as a feat out-of-touch parasites. He would paint the Catholic Church with the same brush. And his fellow socialists? Well, hopefully they would go along with his emphasis on an Italian identity. Italian product in Italian hands. Not a part of some larger European collective that exploited their labor just as the king was currently doing. His goal was to inspire socialist revolution in Italy. But by the time he was done, there would hardly be an Italy left at all. Next, Mussolini forms the fascist party. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1904, 21-year-old Benito Mussolini returned to Italy after years of working with socialists in Switzerland. Italy was still suffering from the rule of a despotic upper class. Mussolini was angered by the continued violence against socialist workers who protested for safer working conditions and better wages. He saw workers in the industrialized north being killed by machinery. He saw miners in the unindustrialized South contracting tuberculosis. He would spend the next several years as a teacher and writer, largely in the Italian city of Forli. Having learned French while he was abroad, he could now translate the radical anarchist and socialist treatises from France and distribute them among the Italian working class. By 1910, his weekly newspaper was inspiring new socialist converts throughout the smaller towns of the North. He was one of them, but he was educated and worldly, able to expose them to ideas they'd never heard of before. His emphasis on masculinity and Italian identity interested them even more. But there was a new philosophy that Mussolini was exposed to that would further alter the course of his socialist thought. According to author Richard Hallion, Mussolini was a fanatic for flight. When he saw French aviator Louis Blériot fly his plane across the English Channel in 1909, he was awed by the possibilities of the age he was living in. It was like looking up to see a dragon or angel trailing through the clouds. Anything was possible in this new era. For Mussolini, there was never any doubt that this new technological age was one to embrace. The future was right. The past full of kings and priests was wrong. The ideal Italian man was strong, aggressive, nationalistic, socialist, anti-Catholic, anti-monarchy, and futurist. Movement, machines, they would give rise to a new Italy. His audience grew. By 1911, he was an editor for a major newspaper. Mussolini adamantly promoted socialist sentiments with his words, while beginning to call for physical action to implement them. He was inciting violence, as he had once done in Switzerland. At his word, socialists rioted and blocked the railway lines that supplied the corrupt government of the king. Mussolini was promptly sent to jail. He would be there from October 1911 to March 1912. This only made him more of a socialist hero. In December 1912, he was given the editorship of Avanti, the leading socialist newspaper in Italy. His fellow socialists literally toasted him, throwing a banquet and allegedly saying, from today you, Benito, are not only the representative of the Romagna socialists, but the duce of all revolutionary socialists in Italy. That nickname, Il Duce, which means the leader, would stick with him for the rest of time. Mussolini and men like him had inspired some change. 
1912 would see the expansion of suffrage in Italy to include most men, even the lower class. Thus, Parliament and the Prime Minister were increasingly more powerful, seen as at least somewhat representing the interests of the people against that of the king. And yet, ironically, just a few years later, Mussolini was forced to leave the Socialist Party and step down from Avanti. The years leading up to World War I made the Great War seem inevitable. Endless alliances, endless monarchy squabbling, and an industrialized war engine that was just begging to be tested. The socialists in Italy by and large saw World War I for what it was, yet another opportunity for the rich to profit off of the exploitation of the poor. Working class men would be drafted, they would die, and whichever government won would have new lands and new citizens to pay taxes. But there was one among their number who didn't agree. Mussolini always maintained a preference for Italian nationalism that his fellow socialists rejected. He didn't buy into their belief in a global society. And with World War I, he saw a way for Italy to re-establish itself as an individual power. They could take territory from the Austrians and form alliances with important powers like England and Russia. Additionally, war was representative of the masculine aggression that had been ingrained in him since childhood. It was also the literal embodiment of machines creating a new future, as he had always believed they would. Planes, boats, and tanks destroying the old and ushering in the new. He couldn't give up on the image of the ideal Italian man that he had been developing since childhood, even if that meant going against the beliefs of socialism. Around August 1914, Mussolini wrote, The proletariat is not disposed to fight a war of aggression and conquest, after which it will merely be as poor and exploited as before. At this point, he seemed to still believe that war was just another way for the rich to exploit the poor. And yet, just a month later, he wrote, We have the privilege of living in the most tragic hour in world history. Do we, as men and as socialists, want to be inert spectators of this huge drama? He was saying that if Italy didn't fight, then it could never be taken seriously on the world stage. This was a pivotal moment, as it isolated him and sent him down a lonely path. In October 1914, he stepped down from Avanti. Just a month later, in November, he opened a different newspaper, Il Popolo d'Italia, advocating for the war. And ultimately, he got his wish. Italy joined the war on the side of the Allies. Britain, France, and Russia in May 1915. With no party, it was Mussolini against the world. Now bitter enemies with many of his former party members, Mussolini engaged in multiple sabre duels throughout 1915. This was an old-fashioned but still popular way of settling disputes in the Mediterranean at the time. It was the zenith of the aggressive masculinity that had been ingrained in all of them since youth. The truly bizarre part was that it seems the goal was not to actually kill the opposing duelist, but to simply injure them. 
Of course, this actually resolved nothing, as both parties were now even angrier with one another. But Mussolini would eventually be able to take out his aggression on the battlefield. He was drafted into the army in late 1915 and saw combat by 1916. To his credit, he chose not to shirk from his duty. He readily agreed to fight in the war he had championed, to be the model of Italian masculinity and aggression. He fought on the northern front against Austria, rising to the rank of corporal. Then, in February 1917, he was injured by a piece of shrapnel. The war wouldn't end for another year and a half, but Mussolini's time in combat was done. Throughout the rest of his life, his followers would praise his brave service, while his critics would claim his injury was overstated. Regardless of the truth, even though World War I was ending, Mussolini's fight had only just begun. The Italians had fought for the winning side, but they still weren't a global player. Their prime minister failed to secure key pieces of territory with the Treaty of Versailles, and much of the poverty in the South still remained. Yet Mussolini believed they could become THE global power. He quickly resumed publishing Il Popolo d'Italia and filled it with impassioned speeches against the weak government. He wrote dozens of editorials, but also spoke in public. He said things like, Italy needs a man who has, when needed, the delicate touch of an artist and the heavy hand of a warrior. It was clear that he was referring to himself. Being hailed as a socialist champion, then being denounced, then taking his followers to a new paper and subsequently becoming a war hero. Mussolini had become an icon and it went to his head. His old selfish streak, his childhood status quo of only looking out for himself, had returned. Any pretense of still following socialism was abandoned as he leaned heavily into nationalism and the idea of harnessing an industrialized Italy for future war. He conflated this idea with the image of a renewed Roman Empire. One of his most famous alleged quotes is, a nation of spaghetti eaters cannot restore Roman civilization. On a surface level, it would appear that he is just calling his fellow Italians lazy. But the reference to spaghetti spoke to a deeper issue he had with the mainstream socialist vision for Italy as a member of the global community. Mussolini thought that the other socialists just wanted Italy to be a quaint tourist destination, one people flocked to for pasta. But it's hard to imagine that he truly believed Italy could return to the glory of ancient Rome. He was worldly enough to know that those days were more than long gone. Logistically, a small country like Italy would never be able to match the power of countries like Britain and the United States. By 1918, his ideology remained muddled. It's possible that he managed to delude himself. It's also possible that he was just using the image of Rome to inspire the classics-loving middle class at the universities. It seems likely that at this point, his politics were less logic-driven and more driven by whatever ideals would transform him from a newspaper editor into a politician with real power. And in just a few years, he would have it. 
But first, his old friends, the socialists, were going to accidentally pave the way. The years immediately following the war, 1918 through 1920, saw an upswing in popularity for the socialist movement in Italy. Socialist politicians gained seats in parliament and inspired crippling labor strikes throughout the country. And though the masses of poor peasant workers were happy with their new socialist gains, better wages, an eight-hour workday, their middle and upper-class bosses feared an uprising. Mussolini, always looking for where he fit into things, saw a way to harness this fear for his own gain. He organized his followers into a new group, the Revolutionary Italian Combatants, the Fascist Party. They immediately set out to do exactly what their name implied. Beginning in large city centers and then spreading out to smaller towns, the fascists, who would become better known as black shirts due to their uniform, terrorized socialist leaders. They would arrive in the night, threatening to burn down the homes of their enemies if they didn't come out to quote-unquote chat. Once they did come out, the socialist in question would be beaten, if they were lucky. Other times, they were defecated on, or they themselves were forced to defecate on socialist literature or iconography. Most infamously, the black shirts would force castor oil down a victim's throat, causing them to have terrible diarrhea and stomach cramps. With certain socialist leaders so thoroughly humiliated, many of their followers were too afraid to speak out against the black shirts. Fascists were also becoming more prevalent in the universities. We mentioned that students studying the classics were inspired by Mussolini's references to ancient Rome. But young students were also enthralled by the way he looked to the future, specifically with an artistic movement known as Futurism. Back in 1909, one of Mussolini's fellow writers, Filippo Marinetti, had published the Manifesto of Futurism, which laid out his vision for a political and artistic movement characterized by violence, machines, and movement. The manifesto reads like a rant, starting off with a maddening story about how Marinetti, while drunk driving, crashed his car and blamed it on two bicyclists who, quote, got in his way. He took this as a sign. The bicycles represented the pitiful technology of the past, and his car the much more powerful technology of the future. In the manifesto, he lays out 11 points, most of which are toxic. One particularly bad one reads, We want to glorify war, the only cure for the world. Militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of the anarchists, the beautiful ideas which kill, and contempt for woman. The contempt for woman almost feels tacked on. But this was a growing aspect of Italian conservative thought. If war, survival of the fittest, was the sole pursuit of life, then men were thought to be the natural leaders of society. It was the woman's role to be the exalted mother of future Italian heroes. Many feminists balked at this, but some women were seduced by the prospect. Futurist thought is very obviously a forerunner to fascist thought. And indeed, Marinetti and others like him would go on to join Mussolini's movement. There were even futurist portraits of Il Duce, 
featuring striking violent lines and extreme contrasts. Think Art Deco meets Surrealism. This kind of integration is how Mussolini slowly won over the hearts and minds of Italians, young and old. The irony is that Mussolini didn't really do anything practical to become popular in Italy. He didn't expose corruption or implement some popular policy. He relied on stoking anger and fear. The anger of the poor working class in small towns who felt that the wealthy had taken advantage of them. And the fear that the wealthy had of the poor. That they would rise up in socialist revolution and make everyone just like them. The contradictions that had always plagued Mussolini now worked to his benefit. Through this method, he would achieve his ultimate goal. In May 1921, parliamentary elections took place to fill the 535 seats of the legislative body. There were multiple competing parties, including the fascists, socialists, Catholics, liberals, and communists. Then Prime Minister Giovanni Giolitti wanted to create a coalition that would ensure he stayed in office. Though his politics were typically a mix of progressive and conservative policies, he found himself losing popularity with the increasingly demanding socialists. A prime minister could only stay in office if they were supported by a majority of the sitting members of parliament. And so he reached out to the fascists, hoping to elect some of them to parliament in a bid to keep himself in power. As a result, Mussolini and dozens of fellow fascists were voted into office that month. It was the first time Mussolini held actual political power. This was far more dangerous than anyone realized. Next, Mussolini becomes supreme leader of Italy. Now back to the story. Italian politics were tumultuous in the years following World War I, and fascist leader Benito Mussolini knew how to harness that chaos for his own ends. In many ways, Mussolini took control of the government long before he was ever recognized as leader. Between May 1921 and October 1922, he organized a large network of fascist organizations, including economic unions and paramilitary troops. They mostly just continued to combat the socialists and bully businesses into agreeing with their policies as to what to produce, who to hire, how to spend. The fascists had their own finance ministers and their own enforcement. It was only a matter of time before the king recognized them as the leaders of Italy. And many, still fearing the rise of the socialists, gladly supported the fascists. They were becoming even more brazen, completely destroying socialist newspapers and meeting places. It was now all but illegal to be socialist. According to historian Michael R. Ebner, this reached a crescendo on October 28, 1922, when the fascists prevented the publication of not only socialist newspapers, but any kind of daily news. This ensured that they had time to construct the narrative of what was about to happen. They pushed the perception that the country was aflame with violence. If it was, it was the fascists who were causing it but they managed to blame the socialists. 
This was indicative of the political chaos the fascists sowed. The freshly unified country was more fragmented than ever, with socialists and fascists in both the cities and more rural areas. King Victor Emmanuel III and then-Prime Minister Luigi Facta initially opposed Mussolini. In fact, Facta, who had only been in office since February, wanted to declare Rome under siege. But the king feared civil war, and he knew that his cousin, Emmanuel Filiberto, was pro-fascist. Filiberto was next in line for the throne and could be used to replace Victor Emmanuel if anything sudden and tragic should happen to him. Afraid for his life and desperate to restore order to his country, the king made a phone call. He was about to make a deal with the devil. The fascists were popular with rural workers. As we've mentioned, Mussolini was able to appeal to their anger toward the wealthy and foreign countries in a way that the socialists failed to. Mussolini's belief in capitalistic production made the wealthy more comfortable with him as well. And so, on October 29, 1922, the king asked Mussolini to be prime minister. Mussolini and his fascists, thousands in number, marched into Rome on October 30th. Mussolini wore his black shirt along with black pants, black shoes with white spats, and a military sash. He didn't look like a dictator so much as some sort of waiter, but he had plenty of time to learn how to look the part. The king officially recognized him as prime minister, minister of the interior, and Minister for Foreign Affairs. Almost immediately, Mussolini took on emergency powers that kept him in office indefinitely. He used his new power to fill parliament with fascists and passed laws that formally made socialism illegal. Throughout the following year, in 1923, his former allies who had shunned him for supporting the war were now thrown in jail or worse. Mussolini had now realized a decade-long quest for revenge. He had transformed his passion for socialist politics into a hate for anyone and anything that got between him and power. He was the ideal Italian man. How could he not be? He was in charge of the whole country. And he had done it using the Italian values that he had always known were superior. Masculinity, aggression, nationalism, futurism, and a splash of socialism that he would no longer acknowledge. Now was the time to implement these beliefs in the actual governance of Italy, to return it to the glory that he had promised. Libertarian researcher Jim Powell writes that Mussolini's economic policies, a unique blend of privately owned businesses under the control of the government, were actually quite successful. Powell says Mussolini's government simplified the tax code, cut taxes, curbed spending, liberalized trade restrictions, and abolished rent controls. These policies provided a powerful stimulus. Between 1921 and 1925, the Italian economy grew more than 20%. Unemployment fell 77%. But this was done at the cost of liberty. Factories produced what he told them to. Bureaucrats were paid off with government money. Any dissidents were jailed, 
and propaganda played continuously in the theaters to make sure no one noticed. And lest we forget, a key component in the fascist framework was the perpetuation of violent mechanical war. Mussolini knew that he needed to keep the factories producing and the young people fighting. Universities could be a hotbed for socialism. Better the young people were distracted. Italy had been pushed out of its African colonies in the late 1800s, and Mussolini knew that he could be seen as restoring Rome's glory if he retook them. Again, an ironic turn, considering one of his original reasons for joining the Socialist Party in the early 1900s was to escape fighting in another war in Africa. On October 3, 1935, he launched a 400,000-man invasion of Ethiopia, employing all of the technology of modern warfare, including mustard gas. It was a horrific display of colonial violence, destroying a country in service of one man's ambition. Although he was extremely racist toward black Africans, he did not agree with the growing anti-Semitism of the Germans to the north. In fact, as Mussolini and Hitler's power grew, Hitler constantly pursued an alliance, but Mussolini remained aloof. He would always deal with the Nazis through an emissary. It's possible that his ego simply kept him from wanting to give Hitler too much credit. His fellow dictator had taken a lot of his ideas and run with them. The land and resources available to the Germans were much more than the Italians had. They were destined to become the new empire, the Third Reich, not Mussolini's Rome. But it's also genuinely possible that Mussolini recognized the radical fervor in Hitler that he himself did not really possess. Certainly, he didn't immediately embrace Hitler's public anti-Semitism. In 1934, he even reportedly said, there has never been anti-Semitism in Italy. There were tens of thousands of Jews in Italy, and it's possible that he didn't want to provoke them. In his socialist years, he had lived and worked with many Jewish people, even dated one. But his loyalties were about to be put to the test. And as we've seen, there was no ideal, no line Mussolini wouldn't cross in the pursuit of his own power. If he was going to keep his fascist war engine running, he would need to continue to invade other countries. Nations like France and England would never allow this. Germany was the only ideological ally, even if that meant allying with Hitler, even if that meant turning on his own Jewish citizens. By 1937, both Italy and Germany pulled out of the League of Nations. By 1939, Mussolini had sent his troops into neighboring Albania, and Hitler would of course famously invade Poland that same year. By 1940, World War II was underway and the tables had turned. It was now Mussolini who had to show admiration for Hitler. Mussolini visited Munich requesting that certain portions of France and Africa be handed over to the Italians. When Hitler refused, Mussolini realized that his admiring fan had now become the face of fascism, even if in Germany it was called National Socialism. 
Previously, the dynamic had been one of distant mentor and pupil, with Mussolini as the mentor. Being that Nazi Germany had always shown such an affinity for fascist Italy, Mussolini perhaps assumed that Hitler would continue to treat his country favorably. But that was not the case. Hitler had come into his own, and he now dismissed his old idol as just another groveling general. Regardless, Mussolini would not check his ambition. He would not realize a mistake. Rather than turning away from this new ally, an ally proving to be an entirely different evil altogether, he continued their alliance, beginning the Second World War in earnest. And eventually capitulating to the anti-Semitic philosophies of Nazi Germany. Before the war was over, thousands of Jews would be forced from Italy and killed in Nazi concentration camps. It was now Mussolini who had made a deal with the devil. Though he didn't know it, this deal was the beginning of the end. Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. We'll explore how Mussolini's empire came crashing down when his lack of ideals came back to haunt him. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Greg Castro, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. Mm-hmm.